Well, I wonder if you remember this. Uh, not last track season, but the one before that. The Huskies were down in Eugene, Oregon for a big meet. And uh, uh, it was a steeplechase, long race. Around the final bend comes an Oregon duck way out in front, Tanjay Pepio. And it's got this huge margin, and the crowd's roaring, and Pepio is just kind of dancing to the finish line, and he's like waving everybody up, and he's getting louder and louder. And he crosses the finish line, but just as he's crossing the finish line, he looks out of the corner of his eye, and he sees a husky blow back by him and beat him by two-tenths of a second. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Marin Smith. We love that. Kind of a dark horse, but all of a sudden, there he is. And it's just crushing. And it turns out people were cheering. They weren't cheering. They were warning him because he had round the track. And I was going, look out, look out from behind you. You can see what, this clip went viral. You can watch the YouTube clip, clip. And it's like for the last 30 yards, I mean, just roaring past him. And you know, the, 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 the question that raises for me is how do you run well so that you finish well? How do you get all the way? You know, it's kind of premature celebration. How do you get all the way to the finish line, right? Well, that's the question that's before the, the readers of this text that we call the, the letter to the Hebrews. I think it's probably written about 74 AD to people, a small group of people, house church in Rome. And the, you could summarize the whole theme of this letter in three words, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Does anybody here today need to hear that word for your life? Don't lose heart, okay? Because discouragement is so common, that's the focus of the whole letter. And the surprise of the letter is that the message isn't run harder, run faster. The message is refocus your attention. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Somehow it's by looking to Jesus that we can run better to finish well. So this brings us back around to the question that's framing this whole series. Well, who is Jesus? Who is he then? What are we seeing when we look to Jesus? Well, we're going to pull out the photo album again. We're going to pull out another one of these images from the book of Hebrews. This one is in two places. So open the Bible and uh, remain seated for, seated for a moment. I want you to turn to page 974 where you see the image itself. It's uh, verse 20 of chapter 6. And I think on your page, that's the upper left-hand corner. Just note the phrase. Verse 20 of chapter 6. It says, uh, Jesus, comma, a forerunner on our behalf. Just hold that in your head. In fact, you might just put a little marker in that page because we're going we're gonna to look at another passage of Scripture. We'll come back to this one. Jesus is a forerunner on our behalf. Okay, flip over to chapter 12 now. Mark that, but turn to page 978 and let's look at verses 12, 1 and 2 because this is where the running imagery gets worked out for us, okay? So if you're able, let's stand and read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And uh, when we're done reading, as I always say, uh, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. I want you to hear this. Usually, usually, 
Races are not lost on the track. They're lost in our heads. Any athlete will tell you that your head is your most important athletic muscle. And that's why, in the context of this discussion about Jesus, our forerunner, the writer wants to talk about what's in your head. Hold the Bible open. I hope it's not too late. Pull it back out. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Jesus disregarding its shame. It's shame. Now, that's what's in our heads so often. I want to take a moment before we look at our forerunner to understand what's going on in our head when the, when the Word of God tells us, be careful of the shame that's there. What is shame? Shame is saying to yourself, I'm not enough. That's really what it boils down to. I'm not good enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not skilled enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm just not enough. Where do we get this idea? Where do we get this idea? You're made in the image of God. Well, usually we get it by comparing ourselves to other runners, right? We have a tendency to compare our weaknesses with other people's strengths. And of course, when you do it that way, you're going to appear not enough. And so here comes the shame. Now, we get that idea in relationship to other people. We uh, deploy it in relationship to the challenges that we face. So discouragement comes. We look at a challenge, we go, that's just bigger. I can't rise to it. It's bigger than I am. This, this problem that I'm facing, that's just too big. I'm just not enough for that. It just feels impossible. It's the shame in our heads that tends to mute our accomplishments and amplify our failures. That's what we focus on. And so we have all kinds of ways of compensating for that by trying harder, running faster, and so forth, or just quitting, staying on the sideline, throwing in the towel. Shame. One New Testament scholar has written very persuasively, uh, his name is David De Silva, that shame and honor are the central themes of the whole book of Hebrews. It's interesting, and we won't explore that now, but you can see that coming out in our passage here. De Silva argues that the Greco-Roman culture was an, an honor and shame culture. Now, our culture isn't so much, but many of us who come from Asian cultures, we understand this. In an honor culture, your most valuable asset it's your reputation. It's what other people think about you. Think about that. Honor. And shame, of course, is the opposite of that. When people don't think highly of you, then you experience shame. Well, this text tells us our forerunner Jesus experienced shame. Not only did he experience it, he redefines it. Because notice in this text that when Jesus sits in the place of maximum shame in the Roman Greco-Roman culture, which is the cross, crucifixion, ugh, no reputation, it's all been destroyed by the time you're hanging naked on a cross. That's where Jesus ran. But then he comes to sit on the throne at the right hand of God. This is a place of maximum honor. See, so what the writer is doing, he does it other places as well, saying Jesus redefines shame. It's not what you think it is. It's not the values of the Greco-Roman world. It's the values of the kingdom of God that shape our worth that ought to. Jesus is a finisher. And to finish with Jesus is to take a hit to your reputation. That's at least what's happening here in this community in Rome. These people are following Jesus. And now, if you see this in chapter 10, largely, they're actually, they're, 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 their reputation in the community is starting to drop along with Jesus' reputation. 
They're going down. And they're finding themselves publicly dishonored. They're finding themselves financially penalized. Some of them, their careers are being impinged on because they're, they're public followers of Jesus. Some are being thrown in jail. They're being persecuted. The world around them says, hey, you're not with us. You're not one of us. You're not enough. And they're going, how long can I do this? Really, it's getting really quite difficult. And I'm not sure I'm enough for this task. I started with Jesus. I don't know if I'm, I'm ready to finish with Jesus. This is costing a lot. Well, I want you to see that shame is not just a psychological problem. It's a missional problem. I mean, believe me, the, the New Testament writer here writing this letter, he's not writing just to boost their self-esteem. He's not coddling his readers. What he wants to do is he wants to shift their source of reputation from the culture to God. Because you will never be a person who can change the world if you're always looking to the world for approval. See, the world tends to reward its own. And as long as you dance to the music of the culture, then they'll love you. But as soon as you start picking out a different tune, then your reputation is going to go down. And these are called to be world changers. The writer of the epistles is writing not to boost people's self-esteem, but he's writing because Jesus plans to change the world. And he wants to invite them to join. He's saying, so please, don't ask the world to clap when you follow Jesus. He'll say, as we'll see next week in chapter 13, that he's calling a group of people together uh, who are going to be called to love foreigners. These are people who are going to be called to visit prisoners, people who are called to oppose torture, to honor marriage, and to use your money generously to care for the poor. So this is a very countercultural community that Jesus is calling into existence. So, of course, where do you focus? Not on yourself, not on the people around you. You focus on the forerunner, Jesus. If we want to be finishers, if we want to be finishers, we have to know what to do with our shame. We have to know how to manage it. So we all feel that, that we're not enough. Several years ago in the Atlantic Constitution, there was an article about a wealthy woman who wanted to write a biography of her family history. And she engaged a well-known historian to do the research and write it up on her behalf. Well, unfortunately, this historian uncovered the fact that one of her grandfathers had been executed uh, as a criminal in Sing Sing. And she said, oh, well, you, you, know, that's, you can't tell. That. Well, well, as a part of his academic integrity, he said, no, I have to, I have to put this in the book. She said, well, can you, can, you, can you kind of sugarcoat it a little bit to make it go down a little easier? So this was what was finally printed in her biography. One of her grandfathers occupied the chair of applied electricity in one of America's best-known institutions. He was so very much attached to his position, he, he literally died in the harness. You know, we do all kinds of things to try to manage our shame. Um, usually we hide, deception works, okay, we could try that. But none of those, none of those will get us to the finish line well. So how do we do it? Well, in brief, we quit looking at ourselves, we quit looking at other people, and we start focusing on Jesus. We look, we fix, we fix our attention on the forerunner. If you saw this race clip, it went viral, this thing down in Eugene. Uh, it's quite sweet, actually, to watch this little clip. But it's also tragic as you think about this guy, this duck. I mean, 
he's running along, he's winning the race. The victory is like basically his, and he realizes it. And what does he do? You can see him starting to look to the right and the left. He's looking up into the stands. He's basically asking the question, how am I doing, folks? I mean, he's, this is his moment of glory. He's looking for approval. He starts waving his hands like, come on, bring it on. Isn't this the most beautiful thing? He's, he's looking for glory. Problem is he's looking in the wrong place. And that's where he begins to lose his stride. And it's not going to be long before he's lying on his back saying, what an idiot. How did I possibly do it? And that'll be his shame speaking to him. This is going to be a viral clip that millions of people are going to see. He'll be the laughing stock of Eugene, okay? So it's all about where you look. That little clip, hold that in your mind. Let me give you another clip that comes from the book of Hebrews. That's obviously pre-YouTube, but, but the, the writer's using language that would evoke a mental image. So, okay, engage your imagination here. He says, he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... He's trying to bring the reader now into the stadium, like the Circus Maximus, which is where they did the um, chariot races and the foot races in Rome at the time. He says, come into the stadium. I want you to look at who's in, the, who's in the stands and who is in the stands. Well, the therefore tells us that he's hearkening back to chapter 11. So who's in the stands? This is the Faith Hall of Fame. Bunch of winners, but not because they had their stuff together. If you read through the whole chapter, by the end, it goes, all these people had, they never saw anything that they were promised. All they had was the promise. <laughs> they knew they weren't enough. They knew that they, weren't, they didn't have enough. But what they had was a faithful God in Jesus. And, and you're surrounded by these witnesses. By the way, these witness in that sense doesn't mean that they're watching you to see you don't screw up. The witness in the biblical sense is these are people that we're supposed to see. They're witness to Jesus. So he says, look up in the stands. Look at the people you're in common with. I mean, these are people that are basically failed runners. They're JV at best. And look, it, they're cheering you on because they know the forerunner. So come into the stadium. And then the writer puts you on the track. In the starting blocks, he says, uh, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. This is the image of somebody who's having to you know, gird up, which means to tie up your robe you know, so you can run, because who could run in a robe? Um, or take off the heavy overcoat or you know, strip down so you can be just really free. And this is what the gospel does. It says, hey, you don't need any of those things that you have been carrying with you to try to help compensate for the sense that you're not enough, just lay them aside. You're not going to need them with Jesus, all right? You're not going to be able to run with them when you run with Jesus. So he puts us in the starting, and then he says, here's where I want you to look. Notice verse 2. This is really the climax. It's a, it's a tightly structured passage, and the apex is there at the beginning of verse 2, looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's as though Jesus is, uh, is already on the victor's stand. He's the forerunner. He's already done running. We're running, but he's already finished. He's on the victor's stand. He's got the medal. He's got the, the wreath, the crown, everything. Focus on Jesus throughout the whole race, he's saying. Okay, that's the clip we're supposed to pay attention to. And the point is, if you want to become a finisher, you have to become a focuser. You have to focus your attention by faith on the forerunner. But who is he? So let me, let me just spend the rest of my time on who is he? What does he look, what does he look like when you look at him? Help my imagination, George. I want to see him, but I can't see him, so what's he look like? Well, let's just take this word forerunner. The, the Greek word, just like the English word, has two parts to it, and a, the fore and the runner part. And here's, let's think of the runner part, first of all. And the point here is that our forerunner disregards the shame. We see that in 2B. Two, two he disregards the shame, meaning he's not looking at it. Oh, he sees it, but he sees through it. 
In fact, he runs through it. He runs through the shame for the joy. He's running for joy. And he runs through the shame. Now, I, wanna, I, want, I want you to see that finishers are people who r- learn to run through shame. Just keep running through shame. You've got to do that. And it, 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 is, it is hard to do. Let me give you a mental picture of somebody who is not willing to run through shame. And that is a woman named Rosie Ruiz. Do you remember that name? Some of you remember Rosie Ruiz. She's one of the most recognizable names in marathon runners, among marathon runners, because in 1979, Rosie was running the New York Marathon, and she ran the first 10 miles and jumped a subway for the rest of the trip. Remember, have you remember this story now? She walks through Central Park to the... Uh, she she's not even glowing or sweating. She did this similar thing at the Boston Marathon the next year, and they busted her uh, because someone had seen her on the, on the subway the year before in New York City. She's like, I don't want to run. Now, don't you wish that life were that way, right? Don't you wish you could run for about 10 years or so, you know, the youth camp, you raise your hand, you say, Jesus, I'm with you, I'm a believer now. And Jesus goes, great, jump on the subway, we'll get you to the finish line, and then you just walk through the park to glory, Right? I wish it's that. And, but if you treat life that way, if you treat the life of faith that way, guess what? You're going to throw in the towel really quick. Because this race, the word he uses for race, it's actually the Greek word from which we get our English word, agony. Run the race, the agony, run it with perseverance. That means endurance. you got to hang in there. You gotta learn to run through the pain. You gotta learn to run through your shame, your sense that you are not enough for this race. Keep running. Sister, keep running, brother. And the reason for that is implicit in the idea of a race is that you're always not there. I want you to just think about this. this is, faith is not about resolving tensions. Faith is about being willing to live with the tensions, okay? So you're always not there so if you're still in the race. There's always a distance yet to go. I, I keep thinking of Zeno's paradox. Some of you philosophers or math majors, you know, Zeno, the ancient Greek philosopher, he said, you can't ever actually get anywhere. Because before you get to the finish line, you have to cross half the distance, and then you're still not there. And then to get to the finish line again, you have to cross half the distance, and you're still not there. And you have to keep crossing half the distance all the time, so you could obviously never get anywhere. Well, I don't think that's actually true. You came here. I don't know how. You're brilliant mathematically that you did. You worked it out. But you know what? What it does tell us is that there's a way in which we have to live with the tension that we're, not al- we're always not fully there yet. And by there yet, I mean you're not the person that you're, you're, you're really meant to be. You're not living out your true nature yet. So you have to live with that tension. If you want to make it to the finish line, you have to accept the fact that there's still more work to be done in me and in you, and it's okay. That's part of the journey. That's what the race is all about. Don't look at yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. Look at Jesus. His course runs through the cross so that you can forgive yourself because he's already forgiven you. That's what needs to be in your head. I got a friend this week, I was talking to him. He goes, he goes George, my life is great right now. He goes, I've learned it's not about where I've been, it's about where I'm going. And I wake up every morning and I preach the good news to myself. We should all be so lucky. If finishers run through the shame, Let's look at the other part of this word. It's the four part on forerunner, F-O-R-E. We see first that our forerunner disregards the shame and we too can run through it. So he's not seeing it when he looks at you. He's not seeing it, so run through it. And then the second thing we see is that our forerunner has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. That's 2C, meaning we know how the story ends, don't we? Kind of focus on that. We know how the story ends. I mean, we live with all these doomsday scenarios, right? We love the post-apocalyptic literature. 
But that's because we're not looking to our forerunner. If we look by faith, we'll see Jesus is on the victor's stand. Jesus wins. Finishers know that they're winners too. Jesus is the one runner who wins for all. Let me give you another picture of this. Um, picture of this painting that was in the news this, this week. I'm sure you saw that uh, someone bought a painting for $450 million, most expensive price tag ever. The painting is called Salvatore Mundi. It means savior of the world. A lot of focus on who painted it. Very little attention is paid to the subject of the painting. <laughs> I mean, that's what might make it worth something. It's about Jesus. So if you saw the picture online, you saw this. Jesus is holding up three fingers, and that's a sign of blessing or benediction, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the other hand, what does he have? The world. That's a glass orb representing the world. Salvatore Mundi, the Savior of the world. How many days of any given week am I crouched under straining under the weight of the sense that I am carrying the world on my shoulders, at least my world, if not your world as well, right? This is the burden that we're under, and we're straining. The load is killing us. And you want to just look at the picture and see Jesus victorious going, <laughs> right? I, can, I got it, he's saying. I got you. I got all your stuff. It's right here. It's in my left hand, and it's super easy for me. Okay, I'm, I, I, we know how this race ends. Jesus is victorious. That's the good news. Now, I, I want you to flip back because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look at 620 again, page 974. That phrase, forerunner, you almost missed it when I, sh when I showed you before, but don't miss it now. He's a forerunner on our behalf. <laughs> That's the key right there. That's where you find the gospel money, so to speak. If he were just a runner, then we'd look at him and be impressed. We'd say, wow, what a great role model. Good for him, he won the race, but he only puts me under the pile. He makes me feel fat and slow when I see him run, right? But it's not, this writer is not offering Jesus just as an example. He's running Jesus as a representative. He's your representative. He's a forerunner. He runs before you so that he can run for you. Okay, did you get that? He says he, he's a forerunner on our behalf. The preposition is everything right there. It's the same. It could be translated in our stead, instead of us, in our place. He runs so that you don't have to run. He wins because he knows you by yourself will not win. This is grace. He's standing on the victory stand for you. He's saying, at the end of this thing, no matter how slow you run, no matter how, whether you crawl across the track, they're going to give you my time. They're going to give you my wreath. They're going to put my crown on your head. I'm on this stand as your representative. Someday you'll stand in my place because of the way I ran, not because of the way you run. See that? Wow. So, of course, when you get discouraged, of course, when you get exhausted, you're going to want to throw in the towel, but you look up the track and you see on the victor stand, there you are. That's your future. That's your real self. You know how this ends. You win. You win. Finishers know that they win. We hear Jesus speaking as a forerunner when he says in the upper room before his crucifixion, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. And that's not about building castles in heaven. That's about going to the cross and paying for the sin in my life and your life.
making place in the heart of God for you. That's why he becomes human. There's a human right now. For the first time in history, there's a human right now sitting on the right hand of God. He's our representative. He's our forerunner on our behalf. So it's his throne that gives us hope. It's our our hope that keeps us running. Those who focus with faith will finish with Jesus. A lot of great examples these days of people who are running through their shame. I'm just very, as painful as I'm very grateful for the Me Too campaign. I'll just say it again. You know, you've got women who have the courage to run through their shame and to tell their story and name names. And it's so important. And we let's keep doing it. Uh, and, And there are men who are being called to face their shame of what they have done and come forward and confess it and acknowledge it and repent of it. And both need to run through that kind of shame in order to find healing in Jesus Christ. But I don't know where else you find it, but Jesus Christ, see, our forerunner. Andrew Garfield, who's, you know Andrew Garfield, he's, we know him for Superman, but he just played the leading role in Martin Scorsese's film Silence, which is a brilliant movie. It's a great, it's even better book. But uh, it's about how we find Jesus in the midst of our suffering and shame. Andrew Garfield plays a priest, And to prepare for the role, he trained as a Jesuit priest for a whole year, went through the Ignatian exercises for a year. And uh, it's so interesting. He said, the big surprise for me was that before, I didn't even know that I believed in Jesus, but I fell in love with him. That was his language. I fell in love with Jesus. Why? Well, he said, because prior to this, he experienced what he called not enoughness. He called that a wound. I carried about this wound called not enoughness. It's the wound of feeling like what, whatever I have to offer is never enough. Do you know that? Do you know that wound? Do you have that wound? Whatever I have to offer, it's never enough. But when he looked at Jesus, Jesus took that wound away, and he said, you are enough. And you are. So what about you? I wonder what the race is looking like today in your lane. When you look down that, what are the challenges? What are the obstacles? What's saying to you you're not enough? What's saying to you, this will never work? I don't know what God is calling you to. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a new ministry. Maybe it's a business or a job. Whatever it is, if God's calling you to do it, he's going to provide what you need to accomplish it. I want you to think of this assignment for a moment as I read some closing words to you. Just whatever it is you're challenged by today, because I want to read some words from history's, one of history's great finishers. He almost flunked out of school, but in 1941, he came back to that school to deliver a speech that has become famous. Winston Churchill said at that school, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. And they had written a song for him. And he, and he asked the principal, can I change one word of the song? You want to change the word darker to sterner. And this feels so relevant to us in America today. Churchill says, do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. Let's pray. Jesus, we bow our heads and we close our eyes so that we can look at you. You are the beginning and the end. 
You're the author and the finisher of our faith. You're the one who starts our lives and will finish them. You're our representative. We bow before you, now finding new strength. We pray for your Holy Spirit to help us this week, each in our own lanes, to confront what's in front of us, to finish the task, to bring glory, not to our names, but to your name. Help us to carry our cross that we might be joined with you in the resurrection glory that you experienced 2,000 years ago today. We look forward to seeing you and knowing you as we have been fully known. In Jesus' name, amen.